0: You have to detach yourself, I guess, from the reality that, you know, there's hot pieces of lead being fired at you and you're in the fight for your life.
1: Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line.
0: Survival is the
1: rule of the day. My jaw was broken. I could feel my molars in the centre of my mouth. We weren't out there to take country. We're out there. At to the, end end of the day, it. everyone we're green oh, as soldier. Yeah. 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 Getting yourself lined up does some, some interesting things to you. A place like the Middle East is constantly changing. What we do there is constantly changing. You're killed, and this, the thing was our own mind He held me up with yeah. a broken whiskey bottle and machete. Eddie Robertson is a former Special Forces soldier. A veteran of the 2nd Commando Regiment, Eddie saw multiple deployments to the Middle East as an elite operative. This is our conversation. Welcome to Life on the Line. Eddie, thanks for coming on the podcast.
0: Pleasure, Alex. Thanks for having me on.
1: Eddie, where were you born?
0: Uh, I was born in Albury on the New South Wales side of the... New South Wales-Victorian border, June 1979. Tell me about your childhood. Yeah, look, um, I had a pretty standard childhood growing up in regional Australia. A lot of sports, wasn't that academically gifted. It was more behaving myself in the classroom that was the issue. But yeah, I played a lot of sport, bumbled my way through school. And uh, yeah, look, I had a great childhood. I, um, I've got two younger brothers, cousins, family and friends. So yeah, it was, it was a typical regional Australia upbringing.
1: When did you first turn your sights towards the military?
0: I'm from a military family, pretty much. I've got a great uncle that was killed in Villas bretnia two grandfathers who were both World War II veterans. One flew Catalina flying boats for the RAAF uh, in the Pacific. The other one was an artillery officer. He was a captain who saw service in the Pacific. So I grew up around those two, you know, my grandfather, my pa and my pop. I also have an uncle who is a Vietnam veteran, so he was conscripted. He saw service with two RAR, or two Ra, as he calls it. Yeah, so he was a Nash-O. And, yeah, look, you know, I mean, I I, I was always fond of the military, very interested in it, Anzac Day, Remembrance Day, growing up. Um, I was taught to respect it. You know, as I got older, I started to read a lot of history, I had a world encyclopedia collection, and uh, I think that World War II Vietnam section of, of those encyclopedias is pretty much thumb warmed out from reading it when i was a kid and yeah look you know i, I think when i got to the end of high school i was sort of at a bit of a crossroads i i, I had an opportunity to, to to play some representative sports didn't really go the way i was hoping but it sort of ended up turning my direction more towards a career in the military which is where i went
1: do you remember when you first stepped into the barracks
0: my first introduction to being a recruit on a military barracks was the bus pulling up at Kapuka and three very agitated military police officers getting on the bus and basically telling us that if we had any pocket knives or firecrackers or nunchucks or anything stupid like that, that we were to surrender them. And uh, yeah, that was, that was the first time I'd, I'd been on a barracks as a recruit in the army.
1: Was that how you envisioned your new career of action and adventure beginning? Um, (laughs) look, I, I knew,
0: I, I just knew like from my uncle telling me the stories, I think, you know, his experience being drafted was a, a little bit more brutal than that. But I knew that, you know, once I signed the dotted line, that my short term destiny was not in my control anymore. Uh, I was very keen. There were aspects of it like, you know, the brass and polishing boots and all that sort of stuff, which, you know, was a little bit monotonous, but for the most part, kind of knew what to expect. Uh, I knew the first uh, stages of recruit training were going to be a bit of a culture shock. And like most of the guys, the first few weeks, you know, it was a bit of a pain in the backside, but once I got through that, I, I really enjoyed it. And then, Uh, When I finished that phase, I then obviously went to School of Infantry at Singleton for the initial employment training. And uh, that was, yeah, that was really, that was when I started to get a taste of what I really joined to do.
1: When do you first set your sights on something more than being an average soldier, Special Forces?
0: I had a lot of books growing up. Tom Clancy, Special Forces, SAS, you know, British SAS, Australian SAS, Royal Marines Commando, all that sort of stuff. I was really interested in that side of soldiering. And I think once I joined and it became apparent that you know, there were ways to find your way into that. Being an infantry soldier, it was a little bit, e- well, not easier, but it was the information was more readily available. Once I realised that there was an opportunity to, to pursue that, yeah, look, I, I, I sort of went went at it. And being at 4R or 4th Battalion Royal Australian Regiment at the time, it, it afforded me an opportunity to attend the Special Forces Barrier Testing and then the Commando Reinforcement Cycle after that. Tell me about the barrier testing. I did the barrier testing in 2000. Back then, I mean it's gone through a number of different changes, but it was called the SFBT, Special Forces Barrier Testing, and it was a pretty much a 3-day selection and, you know, physical and mental aptitude selection or preliminary selection before you went on to the Commando Basic Training Course, which is now called the Commando Selection Training Course. Basically, the first day was a number of physical activities, 2.4k battle run, 3.2km run was the next day in boots, webbing and rifle, swim test, RDJ, which is run, dodge, jump, battle ropes, you had to climb up and down twice in patrol order. And then it culminated in a four-hour endurance march followed by a nine hour or three three hour stands of what was called exercise resolute warrior, which was basically just problem solving and physical exertion to try and weed people out whilst they were fatigued.
1: You're describing that like you're navigating the aisles in a supermarket. How do you find the inner strength to motivate yourself to keep pushing through this? 9-11 hasn't happened yet. We're not in a state of war. What's driving you?
0: I was very fortunate that when I first got posted into, into the battalion, it was during a time where 4 had been re-rolled as a commando unit and it was going through a bit of a change. So they'd been given their orders for the peacekeeping operation or mission to East Timor, so they needed to bolster the numbers. So a lot of us guys that were straight out of the infantry school were basically posted in as riflemen. Then we were given the opportunity, you know, look, you're here now, we're not going to give it to you you still have to go through the same selection criteria. But if you're interested, we'll take the time to train you up. I was in a platoon with about 30 other guys. We were all volunteers. We were all young guys in our you know, late teens, early 20s, very motivated. We knew we were going to Timor, but we also all wanted to become commandos. So... We PT'd together, we did navigation together, we did communications and medical training, weapons training, all that sort of stuff. And uh, I think there was an intrinsic motivation because it's what I wanted to do, but there was also that collective group You know, we're all feeding off each other and, um, you know, that's where our strength lies in commandos because we all know the strength of the team and that's what gets us through.
1: What's your first deployment?
0: Uh, My first deployment was Operation Taninger, So the United Nations transition for East Timor or transitional administration East Timor. So that was from around about April 2001 to October. Uh, So, yeah, I was a young infantry soldier in uh, 4th Battalion Royal Australian Regiment Commando. And, uh, yeah, it was a peacekeeping deployment and that was my first time away
1: in uniform. What were some of the tasks you were doing in Timor?
0: Uh, Yeah, Timor, you know, look, it was a a variety of things. We were based in Ida-Balettin, which is a coastal town. When I first got over there, we were living out of a disused school right on the beach. So we generally do between the three platoons within the company. We do a two-week rotation between fort security, uh, localised patrols and vehicle checkpoints or SNAP vehicle CPs to try and counter the illegal fuel and tobacco market that was going on across the border of West Timor. The final two week rotation, we would go out to a patrol base called Patrol Base Marco, which was located a little bit further away near Maliana. But in that area in Marco, it was really good because you'd be there in platoon strength. And the platoon was then broken down into three sections where a section would do patrol base security, another would do the local patrolling and, and security operations. And then the other section would do what we call green hat patrols, which were a lot of the time we would be inserted by a helicopter up into the hills, cammed up, full tactical patrolling. The purpose of that was basically to try and intercept any militia activity in the hills, even though there hadn't been That much going on there was still that threat so for a young guy going out on a new zealand uh, army huey and getting dropped into the jungle it was really pretty exciting and um a great experience the most hair raising experience there was when we'd have to drive from um Bobanaro which was where our regimental head or our battalion headquarters was back down to Ida Ballett and we'd have to negotiate down a pretty dangerous road with no guardrails and um, driving you know unimogs or six by six vehicles with questionable brakes that was probably the scariest experience there but um, look you know it's certainly we knew even though we were quite young that we were part of a global something that was on the global stage and um in particular we whilst we were over there there was a, a democratic election took place so we were also tasked to provide security during the election process
1: so that was pretty important work do you remember where you were when 911 happened
0: yes uh distinctly uh I was at patrol base marco that that small place I just described and uh I remember there was a couple of us. We were, I think, we were either training in the outdoor gym or we were kicking a footy or something. And somebody came out and said, "Well, I'll quick, everyone in into the CP or the command post." Where well, we had a little, an old school television set up there. This is 2001, so it wasn't LCD or anything like that. Yeah, so we'd been, we'd gathered around this uh, small television, and, and there were pictures being transmitted of the uh, or broadcast of the the tower with the first plane strike. Like many people, I think there was a fair bit of confusion there. But then I distinctly remember we watched the second plane come in. Even just talking about it now, I I still feel a little bit um, chilled because it it was really frightening for a lot of us. And, um, you know, we were going, geez, you know, this is America, one of our major allies, and this is clearly, you know, some kind of attack. And uh, I remember one of the senior guys said, we're going to go to war over these boys and
1: the rest's history. Did that concern you at the time, the knowledge you were most likely going to war?
0: No, look, I I had a few mixed emotions. I mean, I, I remember the footage of the people that had thrown themselves out of those buildings because they were their alternative was to burn to death. Like a lot of guys, I took that personally. You know, I mean, they were innocent people you know, going about their business and then, you know, what happened, happened. But um, I I think, you know, we were all pretty, you know, there was a collective resolve there that if we were going to be sent, that's our job and that's what we're there to do. It wasn't anything, you know, that was driven by vengeance or it was, if we're going to get sent to support a coalition effort, then that's what we're going to do. And as, as you know, not long after, um, some, some guys from the SAS ended up going over to Afghanistan. And then um,
1: obviously the rest's history. Before you get to the Middle East, you have to go through parachute school.
0: Yeah, PTS, Parachute Training School down at Nara. Some of us refer to it as Malfunction Junction, but that's just a bit of black comedy. Yeah, look, I went down there in 2002 and did my BPC, your basic parachute course, and then my Special Forces water module. Um, And yeah, look, I mean, it was was a great month. You know, the BPC went for about a month. We had a weather holdover period. I can't remember what month it was, but there, there was some sort of inclement weather, which cause us to hold over but yeah look great time you know down there with a group of friends again the monotony of being up in the risers any blade that's gone through that course or tell you spend a lot of time being suspended in a industrial unit from what's called parachute risers and doing all your drills and but yeah once it got to the point where we we actually started to get dispatched from the C-130s I never had an issue with jumping I didn't really enjoy the landings on land water landings or water descents were a lot more enjoyable but um again Again, it was just a great course, and I really enjoyed it.
1: Did you have any malfunctions yourself?
0: No, I'd, I'd never had any malfunctions. The only, uh, I mean, in all in all jokes aside, I mean, a malfunction's a very serious incident. But um, we had one poor bloke on our course. Uh, I think it was our last. Land descent by day. Who got blown into some trees and had to get winched out by the Westpac rescue chopper. So that was about the most exciting thing that happened on our course.
1: And what heights would you be jumping from?
0: Static line, uh, static line round canopy descents are generally anywhere between a thousand and twelve hundred feet. Um, which, you know, it sounds like a lot, but, you know, once you go through the deployment process and you do your awareness count, it's not a long time to be under canopy before you have to start preparing for your landing.
1: You're deployed to the Middle East area of operations on a number of occasions over eight years. We're not going to talk about an exact chronology of your service, partly out of the secrecy of the work you're doing. However, let's talk about some specific anecdotes from your time in the Middle East. Can you give me a bit of an overview impression first of your first deployment?
0: Um, First deployment to Afghanistan. Again, you know, I'd spent time in the Middle East, but from a contracting perspective. But yeah, I'd I'd never deployed to Afghanistan, got there. And look, we'd done a lot of preliminary training, like cultural awareness training. I'd studied the topography, had a look at footage, um, documentaries on the place, I'd done some reading but nothing can really truly prepare you for when you get off the back of that aircraft and you land at tk at the airstrip there back then it was before the americans had turned it into a proper asphalt runway it was still a dirt runway the ramp comes down you get off the aircraft the dust the smell of the burn pit that's burning continuously on the fob and then you look out the distance and you know the whole area is surrounded by a vista of you know mountains which is quite spectacular you know i mean afghanistan is a place of a lot of destruction and uh, being steeped in warfare, but it is also quite a, an amazing place. Sometimes you just find yourself looking at a vista and just you have to check yourself to realise that you're there. But, yeah, that was my first impression was just I'm finally here and um, it's time to get down to work.
1: Well, that's it. You are finally there. It's not like you were immediately deployed after nine eleven when the emotions were running high. I can imagine it was difficult to find yourself in what was an abstract concept or you know footage and stills on the nightly news you're now there the reality hits home that you're part of the narrative of history
0: yeah, that's, that's right. From my experience of Afghanistan, yeah, that, that was the start of that. And yeah, you're right, it was six years, a little less than six years after the, the planes had flown into the towers. And um, look, a lot had happened in that period of time. We'd obviously committed an initial special forces task group. They'd been withdrawn. And then for whatever reason, the government decided to recommit us. We were the second rotation on the recommitment. So another one of our companies had, had we basically ripped in to replace them yeah look you know i mean those guys had a fairly busy trip They'd had one member of the company that was pretty seriously wounded gunshot wound um and that was not too long before the end of the deployment so that was quite fresh on our minds and you know a healthy healthy reminder that where we were was was still a very dangerous place
1: do you remember your first patrol?
0: Yes, I do remember my first patrol. Uh, the first patrol, first patrolling country was actually referred to as a nursery patrol, which I think was, you know, I mean, it was named that with good intentions. It was more like, you know, look, you guys are, you've just ripped in, you're still getting acclimatised, get you out. We were doing a lot of vehicle mobility operations during that period of time. So it was just getting the vehicle set up to our requirements, going out a relatively close proximity to Terrancow, basically a shakeout, getting the vehicles out, getting used to them. Every vehicle's got its own idiosyncrasies. I was a driver. I was responsible for the maintenance and serviceability of, of the Land Rover 110. I think from memory, we went out for 72 hours. Look, it was it was good. It was it was great to finally get out in the cars, start doing a bit of navigation, learn how to negotiate some of the, the terrain with a very heavily loaded vehicle um, with people on board and do it safely and take. Tact- and then the culmination of that patrol, we, we actually got involved in a very uh, major engagement, which resulted in us having to call in some air support, JDAMs and some 2000 pound munitions. And yeah, look, you know, I mean, that was that was a very serious reality check at the end of that 72 hour patrol.
1: When you've heard the first bullets flying at you in that patrol, did you know what was happening?
0: Basically what happened we we were in a in an area in a small valley
1: we had some vehicles
0: that were in overwatch positions and they'd been getting you know I would call it like harassing fire against them and they were returning fire and um it wasn't really that exciting I mean you know we knew that there was some guys in the area and but then once we mounted the vehicles and we started driving out of the valley and then it kicked off look you know I mean there was a lot of very accurate sustained fire we had a couple of guys that were shot non-life-threatening but still they were shot mortar rounds on the side of the vehicles that had rounds going into the into the canisters that were holding them we had antennas being shot off radios and all that sort of thing so I think the training kicks in but there's always in the back of your mind you realize you know know, i'm in a firefight here or i'm in a i'm in a gunfight but you don't really personally i never felt terrified i I mean there's always a bit of healthy fear there but i knew what was happening at all times we we all did but the training kicks in and, and that's what gets you out of there
1: it causes you rightfully and practically to have a level of emotional disconnect
0: You know, I mean, if you become too emotionally invested in the situation, you can become overcome by events. You have to detach yourself, I guess, from the reality that, you know, there's hot pieces of lead being fired at you and you're in the fight for your life and you have to revert to your training and all the things that they teach you right back to the very basic soldierly skills of effective cover, observation, passing on information, all that sort of stuff. You know, they're the
1: little one percenters, but they're the things that keep you alive. When you're back at barracks and the adrenaline levels get to drop and you get to unwind, do you guys talk about it much? I imagine there's a lot to process in that, you know, the first time some of you guys have been fired at, the first time you're returning fire, the first time you're killing.
0: Yeah, look, we have a, a process, basically a debriefing procedure or a process where you'll have a, a short collective, what we call a hot wash, where we we get together the key points, any major either things that needed serious improvement or to be fixed are raised then and there, so they're fresh in everyone's mind. We might talk through something in particular if there's a little bit of ambiguity, but with regards to high fives and back slapping and all that, no, not really. It tends to come down to the fact is that you. You're just doing what you're trained to do. I think everyone at some stage or another might have moments where they, they realise the gravity of the situation and that can come at any time. I mean, I've, I've certainly had moments, maybe not so much immediately afterwards, but, you know, it could be days or even weeks after where the, the reality of it really sinks in. It's like, gee, that was a pretty close call. But I'm still here and um, I did my drills or something's looking out for me. So, yeah.
1: You also find yourself in Iraq, but not with the commandos. Can you tell me how you found yourself there and what the work was?
0: So in 2004, it was around about the middle of 2004, I made the decision to discharge from the army. And the motivation behind that was there was... A job offer that came my way for security contracting in Iraq so I missed out on going to Iraq with the deployment for operational Falconer and At that point in time, there there wasn't really much on the horizon. We hadn't committed to Afghanistan or the commandos hadn't. And uh, there wasn't another Iraq deployment coming. So I thought, look, you know, I've been offered this job. I've got a couple of friends that, you know, I've served with that are already over there contracting. So I threw my hat in the ring, you know, and um, initially I I said that I was going to go for a year and it ended up being close to two and a half years uh, I spent
1: contracting. What were you doing in the contracting work?
0: When I first got over there, I was working in support of the Iraqi Electoral Commission. So the 2004, the first democratic election since the toppling of Saddam and the Ba'ath Party regime took place, uh, it was around about October, November 'oh four. basically supporting there was a mixture of convoy security, helicopter security or helicopter protection party or security parties. We were transporting officials from the Independent Electoral Commission of Iraq, we were were tasked with guarding election material after the actual vote itself to make sure that there was no tampering with or destruction of ballots. And yeah, look, it was a it was an interesting time. I mean it was again pretty important event on the world stage. I was only 25 years old, I've found myself working with some very interesting people from different backgrounds around the world, working with an element of security officers or private security contractors from Iraq, some were Kurdish. Some were Arabs from Baghdad. Uh, we had an interpreter who was, he'd actually gone to university in London. He was a qualified doctor, but he was unable to get work during the war. So he'd become an interpreter for the uh, private security industry. It was an exciting time. I mean, it was dangerous. Towards the end of 04, you know, things were starting to happen, but then uh, I found myself in 2005, I, I was uh, in Crete, which is Saddam's hometown. and. Uh, Well, I was based out of Tikrit and a forward operating base that was called forward operating base danger. And yeah, you know, that's, Tikrit is part of what's called the Sunni triangle. That's when things really started to heat up. A lot of IEDs, a lot of indirect fire on the base. We would regularly get mortar rounds coming in onto the FOB um, or forward operating base. And then I ended up back down in Baghdad for pretty much the end of 2005, right the way through till the end of 2006. I was living in the international zone or the green zone as it's called, but I was doing a lot of travel throughout the metropolitan area or the greater city area of Baghdad, Taji, um, just pretty much all around that area. Occasionally out to Ramadi, and yeah, look, you know, I mean that that as documented, that was a pretty brutal time. There was a huge increase in violence, not just in Baghdad, but in the country itself. And towards the end of my time there, that was when President Bush at the time announced the surge, the first surge. So that was 20,000 additional troops and most of them were going into Baghdad. So look, it was a great experience. It was it was interesting. I learned a lot It gave me a sense of what the world was really about at the time, being on the coalface there and, and not just looking at it on the news but just being there and being involved in it. It was certainly an experience I won't forget.
1: What then pulled you back into the Australian Defence Forces?
0: Guys like us keep in contact with each other. We're, we're always uh, checking in and, and keeping tabs on what's going on. So as I said, there was a group of us that had left the unit and we were over there and um, you know, a lot of the boys back in the unit were always asking what's happening and is there any work available. Or But then all of a sudden they um, started getting committed again. So they went to Afghanistan with that initial group rotations, one, two and three of the Special operations task group so that was Two thousand and six, late two thousand five, two thousand and six. And one of my friends had sent me an email and he said, Hey mate, I I know you you know you're doing your thing over there, but um we've been told that the special operations task group's gonna kick off again. There's gonna be some more rotations and you know, if you come back now, it's a good time to come back because you'll be back right in time to um to gear up to go back over again with us. So I thought, you know what? What initially was meant to be a year's turn into two and a half let's try something different. So I came home, made a couple of phone calls, got the re-enlistment process started, had to do a medical, another physical test, physical assessments. Yeah, within about six weeks, I was back at Holsworthy, back in uniform. And six months later, I was over there on special operations task group rotation five. That's pretty much uh, picking up where we spoke
1: about before. Can you give me more of an overview of what your unit is doing day to day, what your role is compared to that of the normal infantry and how you're utilizing your special capabilities.
0: Obviously, the 2nd Commando Regiment is part of the Special Operations Command, which is a, a separate command within the Army. It's made up of a few different units. Special Air Service Regiment is one of them as well, uh, and Special Operations Engineer Regiment, the guys that I was talking about. So 2 Commando is a unit which is tasked with a variety of different uh, operational orders or, or tasking. So they can range from precision strike, direct action, counterterrorism operations, Protective security missions. We're capable of conducting large-scale offensive operations beyond the range and capabilities of conventional units. That's the reason why guys are selected and then put through a fairly extensive reinforcement cycle, which is around about the 12-month mark. When you get to a point when you can actually move into one of the uh the, the strike or the the commando companies, from there um, you have to. St- undertake a number of different specialty skill sets to bring you up to a a higher level. And then you throw the counterterrorism piece into that as well. And we actually also man what's called the Tactical Assault Group East Coast, which is uh, the Australian government's force of last resort to resolve domestic counterterrorism in Australia.
1: When you're deployed over to Afghanistan or Iraq, do you have a typical deployment length or is there does it vary depending on the nature of your mission?
0: Uh look, the, the deployments uh the deployments vary. I will only speak about what's already been discussed in open source, but in Afghanistan our deployments range generally anywhere between four to eight months. And that was largely dependent on the time of the year. Being deployed over there during what they call the fighting season, which is the Northern Hemisphere summer. You know, they were fairly intense deployments, you know, a lot of fighting. But then we had the wind to drawdown period, which wasn't necessarily laying down arms, but you get the winter over there, um, the snow would set in a lot of the time and and generally a lot of the uh, Taliban and their hierarchy would go over the border into Pakistan to regroup for the following fighting season. So those trends certainly dictated the lengths of the deployments. With regards to Iraq, uh, you know, the guys that went there on Operation Falconer were there for about, I think they were there for about four or five months from memory, but the guys that are over there at the moment and I, I can't discuss uh, the lengths of those deployments.
1: In Dog We Trust, talk to me about explosive detection dogs.
0: The dogs, I love the dogs and the dog handlers, the EOD guys, the MST like all the guys from the Engineer Regiment, the Special Operations Engineer Regiment, they work closely with us, um, not just in Afghanistan, but you know when we're doing domestic counterterrorism as well. And those guys, they're part of our team, just like the dogs. And the dogs are great, you know. I mean, like they obviously they're trained to do a job, but they're a great morale booster as well. You know, I mean, you're sitting out in the middle of the desert, you've got the dog handler with you and and the dogs there. And not that we we make a habit of playing with the dogs or petting them or anything, you know, too crazy. But it's good to you know have a four-legged friend out there with you and um a lot of the time too you know like the dog handler's playing with his dog and throwing the ball or whatever that you know it provides a little bit of light-hearted relief those dogs have saved a lot of lives on the battlefield and um we've lost some dogs over there too which uh you know the boys feel those losses as much as one of the operators or other soldiers you know what i mean because those dogs are part of our team
1: If they find an IED, an improvised explosive device, then the basic protocol is to do a BIP, a blow in place. But I can imagine sometimes IEDs were missed. Were there any close calls for your team?
0: Yeah, look, uh, the IEDs, you know, I mean, that in themselves, uh, they went through an evolution. They began as uh, fairly rudimentary pressure plate devices that were constructed. Some were made of homemade explosive materials. Others were artillery shells or, you know, there was a variety of different types. The ones that were high metal content, they were generally picked up by metal detecting devices. But then when they started to realise what our capabilities were, they started to, to construct them out of uh, very low metal content. Quite rudimentary, but like also sophisticated by Afghan standards initiation sets and, and the way they'd set them up was to try and sort of defeat our capabilities. Me personally, uh, look, you know, I mean, I, I've, I've driven, well, we didn't realise it at the time, but after the fact we'd driven over a, an Italian anti tank mine that had been set, those mines are actually set for weight initiation, so the user can set them depending on what kind of armoured vehicle that they're trying to attack, they can adjust the weight. We are in a Land Rover, we drove over it and then uh, about 50 metres behind us, we had a Bushmaster vehicle that drove over it and its weight initiated the mine and uh, it had a couple of blokes injured in the vehicle. The vehicle was destroyed. It had to be dragged down into a valley and then we had to call an airstrike in on it because it had some sensitive materials. So, I mean, that was quite frightening to having seen the results directly and being within the blast range of of that actually happening. And then thinking, gee, you know, we're in a Land Rover vehicle with no armour if we drove over that. Yeah, it would have been all over. So the IEDs were pretty, pretty nasty things, you know.
1: Can you recount for me some of your contacts with the Taliban?
0: Obviously been in a few. I remember one in particular, we were in an area called Mirabad Valley, which a lot of the other guys would call it the Mirim Badass Valley or whatever. But, um, yeah, we were in a fairly open area in the valley and um, we were patrolling through a cornfield. We were engaged, we returned fire, and, yeah, you know, I mean, we had a a partner force from the Afghan army at the time and um, during that that engagement, yeah, I was doing my drills, I was bounding and um, working in pairs with my operational partner, OPPO, and uh, next thing you know, I'd, I'd hear this AK fire And there was an Afghan army soldier that was pretty much standing above me, firing a burst from his AK-47 without even taking a sight picture. And uh, I was just yelling at him, get down, get down, because we were taking effective fire. We laughed about it at at the end, but yeah, I mean, it was quite a serious situation
1: because we were under machine gun fire. I'm trying to get a picture as well of this event. What kind of kit do you have on you?
0: When we're out conducting, you know, sort of disruption operations where we might be vehicle mounted or or we might be inserted by helicopter into an area for a couple of days, you generally carry what we were calling patrol order heavy, which was uh, your ballistic plates, your body armor on your plate carrier or your assault order. Generally, you know, probably half a dozen magazines, depending on what nature or what kind of weapon you were carrying. If it was 5.56 or 7.62 would dictate what your load was. And then if you were carrying a machine gun, some grenades, your night fighting equipment, obviously water and rations and enough sustainment to keep you going for a couple of days. And then medical kits, communications equipment, electronic countermeasure devices. You're also carrying your combat helmet, uh, night vision equipment, Night vision equipment, battery packs. So yeah, look, you know, I mean, it's it's fairly heavy. You know, that's why most of the guys are fairly robust. Uh, we do a lot of emphasis on physical training. It's to be able to carry those loads and to be able to operate effectively when you're carrying those kind of loads. And then the hotter months, it's the conditioning. Some of those jobs, you know, we drive to an area and then we might walk anywhere between six and 10 kilometers to get to a target area and we do our job on the target and you know there could be a firefight or there there might not be and then we might have to walk all the way we generally walk all the way back to our vehicles or, or back to another helicopter landing zone and you might have equipment that you've seized um weapons ammunition bomb making material you might have persons of interest that you know For whatever reason, there's been a decision made that they need to be taken back for questioning. A lot of gear, you know, you become acclimatised fairly quickly to the heat I've found but to the cold, yeah, that's, that's. I mean, when you're over there in the winter and and you're carrying all that equipment and it can be pretty
1: harsh, yeah. And you're also cammed up and you're allowed to grow out your facial hair so you look like the bearded devil men to those you're fighting. (laughs) Yeah, the
0: beards, um, oh, well, that went through a bit of an evolution in itself. When I first started going over there, it was beards were, were worn or grown and worn as a uh, cultural sensitivity issue. Being Afghan men, we would interact with the elders in a village or whatever, and we, that if you couldn't grow a beard or you didn't have a facial hair, that you weren't considered a, a man or a man of importance or power. Or But towards the end, um, you know, my last trip in 2011, I most of us, we weren't running a beard. We'd have like maybe three or four... Five day growth. Just so you're not, you know, having to use a razor every day. But those days of the big Ned Kelly beards um, were long gone because they just make life even more unbearable. I mean, I, I don't know how hip, hipsters enjoy it because having a beard is probably the most uncomfortable thing
1: you could have on your face. <laughs> Let's talk about interacting with the local population.
0: Well, you know, I mean, it's it really varies on where you go. Uh, in a lot of the regional areas of Afghanistan, a lot of those people they haven't had much interaction with coalition soldiers before. I mean, we went—I remember—we were in one remote village up in the hills, and an old tribal elder thought we were Russians, um, and we had to explain to him through our interpreter that we were from Australia. So that just indicates, you know, the level of um, exposure a lot of them had. In the regional areas, you'd find that, you know, I mean, it's trad- it's a very tribal area, the Pashtun people, and their focus is purely, you know, their tribe, their family, their crops, their livestock, and the area in which they inhabit. A lot of them, you know, they didn't even know who Hamad Karzai was or they didn't care about what was happening in Kabul or Kandahar. Um, they, their life purely revolved around, it was almost like feudalism or, you know, old-school tribalism. Then some areas you'd go to, they were more influenced by local government. They had political affiliations. Some were very staunch anti-coalition. And, you know, whilst they might not be taking direct part in hostilities, you could certainly tell by the body language or just the way that they interacted with you that they you weren't welcome there. But for the most part, I think, you know, the Afghan people, they were just trying to survive. It's a country that's just been steeped in warfare for decades and uh centuries in fact and the average afghan in the regional areas of urizgan where we predominantly operated just wanted to survive you know like plant their crops tend to their crops and provide for their families
1: could you see much cultural developments or progression over the time the different years you were there
0: Yeah, definitely. When I first got to TK or Tarrantkout, I remember the first time we went downtown, you know, it was, was, I wouldn't say a shanty town. I mean, there there were structures there, but it was fairly, uh, I guess, undeveloped by Afghan standards. There was one major tarmac road leading out of the town and, you know, there was bridge developments going on, schools being built, And then the next time I went over, you know, some of those projects had been finished and there was, I guess, more of a commercial hub um, within TK itself. And then the last time I was there with the special operations task group in Tarenkout, yeah, look, you know, TK was fairly bustling electrical infrastructure had been installed people had lights in their homes at night you could see clearly see not street lights but from the multinational base tarrant you could see the the ambient light from downtown tarrant and yeah look you know roads bridges schools you know the engineers had built i think they'd built a couple of mosques there as well so you know i mean it was a lot of physical signs that things had been built and developed there And, yeah, you know, it was was obvious to see. And then the base itself, you know, like I stated earlier, the Americans had moved in and uh, built a full military-grade runway which serviced uh, the increase in air traffic. The place changed. Over the eight years I was in and out of there, it changed quite a lot.
1: When did you first meet Cameron Baird?
0: I first met Cam, or Baird as he's known, first met Cam in early two thousand. And, yeah, as I stated previously, you know, we were young soldiers in uh, in Charlie Company, 4RAR, and we'd all arrived at the battalion as infantry soldiers, as grunts. We knew we were going to Timor. Stoked to finally have our first posting into an into a infantry battalion. And, yeah, Cam, you know, he was a larger-than-life character, very... Uh, you know, excelled at PT. He was a tall bloke for a young fellow who was very athletic from his football days. I remember the first night I met Cam was at a an unauthorized boxing tournament in the barracks.
1: Were you competing?
0: Uh, I wasn't competing, no, but a friend of mine was competing and um, yeah, we, we all went down to where this, uh, this boxing tournament was taking place. It was in an old um, It was a gymnasium building and then above it was what was called the transit lines or transit accommodation and then off to the side of the gym was a a wet canteen or a boozer. So you had blokes in the gym training and then guys having a beer down in the boozer and then guys up in the transit accommodation because a lot of us were, were new recruits oh, – or sorry, new march-ins to the battalion, so they were still arranging accommodation for us. My friend volunteered for a fight. as a few other blokes volunteered for fights and the guys that organised it, they'd match you up with someone of equal uh, stature or, you know – Weight? Oh. <laughs> It wasn't a science. There was no like scales there. They certainly weren't getting it down to like WBA standards or anything like that. But um, my friend, you know, he was he was athletic. He was bigger than a lot of us. But he volunteered, and then uh, they decided that Cam was going to be fighting him. And uh, I hadn't met Cam. My friend hadn't met him either. And uh, all of a sudden, they started chanting, you know, Bertie, Bertie, because a lot of the guys knew Cam because he was living in the transit accommodation. And uh, next thing you know, he comes up the stairs from the boozer, I think he was down there having a beer, and um, he's come up the stairs and sort of thrown, ripped his singlet off. He had a, a tank top on and he's ripped it off and... You know, he was just adding to the excitement. He was playing up for the crowd and um, that was what Cam was like. He was a bit of a joker, not in serious moments, but, like, he loved to laugh. And um, my mate, I, I said to my mate, I think you're stuffed, mate. I think uh, you're going to get done here. And sure enough, Cam cleaned up my mate and my mate got a blood nose. And um, But then Cam shook hands with him and made sure he was okay. And,
1: and yeah, that was my introduction to, to Cameron Baird. Let's fast forward from that boxing match. You're with Cam in 2007 when he performs the actions that earn him his medal for gallantry. Yeah. Talk me through that day.
0: Okay. Um, Yeah. So, look, you know, we were towards the end of our rotation there. We'd had a fairly busy and, you know, successful rotation. And yeah, look, you know, I think we were a couple of weeks out from heading home or or getting ready to head home. And it was the 23rd. 2nd of November 2007, we were in an area, we were doing vehicle mobility operations and uh, basically that evening we received orders or, or new orders to move to an area and prosecute a target or conduct a direct action against a target. We drove to an area, we staged our vehicles, we got all of our equipment ready, we did our confirmatory orders and then we started a fairly long walk down into a target area. Once we got down there, we basically, as per our orders, we'd separated into our call signs and then we started clearing uh, individual structures. The call sign that I was a part of, Cam Bed was the acting team commander that night, so there were six of us, including Cam, and uh, we were part of a 12-man section. So there were two six-man teams, but we were individually commanded and we were working together within a, an area that we were tasked to clear. So we'd assembled, we'd made entry into the, the steel gates of, of a large compound area, and inside this compound were some guys that were, they were basically constructing or manufacturing IEDs, so bombs, they were making bombs. And uh, yeah, as we came in, We did our drills, uh, we're taught to clear rooms or clear buildings in a certain way. We conducted that drill and as soon as we basically went through the threshold, we were engaged with a machine gun from one direction and then an AK-47 from another and they were both directed in at the entry point because there was only one way to get into the place. So they call that the fatal funnel. When you when you go through a doorway, the people that are defending that position will generally aim towards the doorway because they know that's where the major threat is and that's where people are going to come in. So we've come in. Um, there was a huge volume of fire. The first guy through the door was, uh, was Luke Worsley. Luke was able to make entry. He identified where one of the threats was on the roof. And he gave the rest of the team a target indication. He said, you know, there's a man on the roof. And then unfortunately, Luke was killed. He was killed instantly. And then basically what happened was we began commencing a clearance. Um, We were bogged down for a little bit because of the other fire we were receiving and then Cam basically he took pretty drastic action and took control of the situation, put himself at risk by exposing himself to the fire so he could, you know, use a grenade for us to regain the initiative and and commence the clearance. And um, it's documented now with his medal for gallantry citation on what he actually did. And yeah, look, it was a very complicated and it was a difficult evening because you know it was very dark. We were operating under night vision equipment. Um, We'd lost a a member of our team. There was a huge amount of enemy fire directed at us. And it was quite a complex stronghold, you know, like the way that it was laid out. There were civilians present, unfortunately. We did our best and we did the job. We got the place cleared and we ended up uh, finding some ordnance, bomb making material, weaponry, ammunition. We lost a man and he, you know he'll never be replaced and you know his final act was to to let us know where the threat was and and inadvertently I think Luke saved a lot of lives by giving us a clear target indication and then Cam obviously with the actions that he took gave us that break to regain the initiative finish our clearance and, and get the job done and get out of there.
1: Was Luke the first killed in action you experienced?
0: Yeah, Luke was the first member of our unit to be killed in action. At the time, we were four-hour commando. It was prior to the name change to 2nd Commando Regiment. But yeah, Luke was unfortunately the first member of the unit as it is now to be killed in action. And uh, yeah, he was the first man that was killed in action in close proximity to me. So it was a pretty uh, pivotal moment in my career.
1: How did you process that at the end of the action?
0: Uh, look at the end of the action, uh, we'd actually we'd had to evacuate Luke during the the firefight to an area of relative safety, so could conduct a, an assessment on him in case he was alive. I mean, as I said, it was fairly dark. Um, we we're under night vision equipment, so the assessment was done. Luke was handed over to the medic or the platoon corps medic, and it was confirmed that he was killed in action. He was he was he was killed instantly. But after the clearance, we we did our subsequent secondary clearance of the area once the threats were neutralized, and then we had to gather the the equipment that we'd found. We had to uh, load Luke up onto a stretcher and carry him back out to our vehicles. We couldn't get a helicopter in to get him out because the helicopters that were actually dedicated to us that night for aeromedical evacuation had been diverted to another uh, coalition partner in an adjoining valley. And because they had wounded and we unfortunately had a man that was was killed and there was nothing that could be done for him, we had to carry Luke back out to our vehicles, which we didn't even think twice about. He was our teammate and we had to get him out of there. But yeah, to answer your question, I'd, I'd the gravity of it hadn't really hit me until the following day when we eventually got a helicopter in to take Luke back to Tarrant Um And I think for all of us, you know, I mean, once we'd made sure our friend was loaded on the helicopter and um, the regimental sergeant major um, and some other guys from Tarrant had come out on that helicopter to take custody of Luke. And, yeah, I think after the helicopters flew away, we, we all realised... What had happened that night, and um, we had a short amount of time to gather ourselves, and then we were basically loaded up in the vehicles and we went on to conduct our next mission. You
1: mentioned civilians. How often were civilians near the line of fire or even became collateral?
0: Look, civilian casualties, unfortunately with counterinsurgency warfare are a byproduct of it. A lot of the times you'd be in an engagement or a firefight and there'd be civilians running through the area or trying to evacuate. It was fortunate in some regards where we we might move into a location like a village or, or a a populated area and the Taliban or, the, you know, the, the anti-coalition militia that were there would realise that we were in the area and they'd want to get it on or, or start a fight. But they'd actually get the women and children to evacuate the village or the area. That was always good because we don't want collateral damage. We don't want women and children in the area if it's going to happen. We don't dictate when it's going to happen a lot of the time. You know, I mean, we follow the rules of engagement. And if we're fired upon, we return fire. But yeah, look, you know, I mean, collateral damage, unfortunately, is a part of counterinsurgency warfare.
1: Let's talk about some of the other kind of work you were doing. Can you describe for the listener what an Overwatch mission is and perhaps with an example?
0: An Overwatch or a, an observation post or OP or basically your team or your call sign is tasked to move into an area and exactly that, provide overwatch. Um, so you're in a in a position where you have eyes on whether it's a, an area of interest or might be a target, a building or a road, for example, that's, that's used. And you move into that area clandestinely, generally by the cover of darkness. Um, you move into that area and establish your overwatch position, get yourself established so you can Keep an eye on the place and report on what's happening there, you know, whether there's people coming or going or, and then you report that information back and, you know, you might have other teams in the area, you might not, but you basically just put in there as eyes and ears on what's happening in that area.
1: And that juxtaposes very starkly with direct action.
0: Yeah, exactly. You know, a DA or direct action mission, you know exactly where you're going and what you're going to hit right down to the the specific building the specific room within the building you know it's clearly defined and rehearsed and everyone goes through the details ad nauseum because you have to know what you're doing the da mission you know a lot of that sort of attention to detail is carried over from when we do our domestic counterterrorism or our counterterrorism hostage rescue operations so yeah
1: One of the other tasks you were doing in Afghanistan was also dealing with the drug trade and the opium fields. Can you talk about that?
0: The last deployment I did with the Special Operations Task Group in 2011, we worked in conjunction with the US Drug Enforcement Administration, FAST, or the Foreign Advisory Support Team. So those guys are basically a tactical team within the DEA, they operate in regions around the world. They are a team, I won't say the size of them, but they are trained in small team tactics. And we basically, a partnership was formed between the DEA FAST and the commandos. We basically, we target the nexus between the drug trade and the funding of terrorism or anti-coalition activity or militia activity activity. A lot of the insurgents um, got their funding, you know, to buy armaments, weapons, explosives through the sale of heroin and opium. Yeah, we would target a an area, you know, we weren't going around burning poppy fields or anything like that, but we'd, we'd get our information from the DEA and we Look, there's a compound there. They've got X amount of tons of raw opium paste. They're in the stage where they're they're getting the opium resin and they're refining it into brown tar heroin. So we go into the area. Uh, a lot of the time, it was very heavily contested because it, you know, it was a, a lot of money. You know, you're talking about millions and millions of US dollars worth of drugs, precursory chemicals, equipment that they use to manufacture it. They're very Sophisticated, even though the equipment's rudimentary, it's sophisticated in how they do it. They load it up in transports. The equipment that they use to process it is portable. Um, so they are not using the same area all the time. So, you know, we'd get real time intelligence. We'd go in there, we'd provide security, we'd clear it of any threats. And then the DEA boys would go in there and they'd gather their evidence samples of the drugs um, that was then used to analyze where it might end up you know that particular strain of heroin they found in denmark or downtown harlem or somewhere like or sydney you know so that's they'd gather their evidence and then they'd basically hand it over to us for destruction and we would completely destroy any drug making equipment drugs the whole lot was just
1: destroyed are there any other particular memories from your time in afghanistan you'd like to share with me?
0: Yeah, look, you know, Afghanistan wasn't all doom and gloom. I mean, there was certainly a lot of hard times over there. We lost, I mean, to Commando, we lost a lot of guys. Um, I knew the majority of those guys quite well. Whilst I'm honoured to know them and to have known them and served alongside them, we all miss them. But um, on the flip side of the um, the loss, there's some funny things happen over there too, you know. I mean, bizarre things happen over there. Um, I remember one one time we were walking out of this area we were climbing up through this reentrant, which is like a you know very steep almost like a creek line that runs down through a feature and um we were walking up through this this area and it was a hot day we'd been going all the previous day before in the night and um our team medic at the time you know like he had his backpack on with his combat medical kit in there and he said it said to my team commander, he's like, Oh, I need to I need to have a shit. And um we were just if you if you could imagine this area, it was like rocks. It was like, you know, the lunar landscape, but just climbing up this really steep re entrant. And so the team commanders stopped the patrol so uh the medic could you know, relieve himself. We'd been walking up this bloody hill on these boulders and it was just, it was hard going, you know, like we were all sweating, it was hot and we, we, we were glad to have a bit of a rest so our medic could uh, take care of himself and next thing you know, I could hear this like sort of the sound of rocks on rocks and, I'm, and I've sort of looked around because I was providing security and I can see the medic and he's carefully trying to like position his pack so it wouldn't roll down the hill, but he lost his grip on it. And next thing you know, this medical kit is just in this Alice pack with a frame on it and it starts rolling down this hill. We're fully tactical, like noise discipline, trying to not give up our position. And next thing you know, this pack just starts rolling down this hill. And as it's rolling, it's gathering speed and it's bouncing and it's just... It was just, I couldn't do anything but, like, laugh. I mean, it was serious and the team commander was furious and this poor guy, like, he's halfway through relieving himself. He's trying to, like, pull his pants up and, I mean, we had a laugh about it afterwards. Everyone was, I mean, I was actually in tears when we got back to the vehicles because it was just, it was comical. But, you know, I mean, look, you know, funny stories like that, you know, there's, there's plenty of them I could tell you. But at the end of the day, you know, I mean, it was an experience that, can't really be bought. And you can never really sort of, I don't think you can ever really explain it and give it justice to the range of emotions that you feel while you're on one of those deployments. You know, I mean, it's, uh you go moments of elation, you know, like you know, when you've done a job and you're successful and, or, you know, you've survived a firefight or a gun battle and then moments of despair, lost a friend and a teammate. But you know, look, it's an experience that I would never change and I wouldn't cha- take it back or anything, you know, it's, um, and that's war.
1: And when do you leave the Army and why?
0: I made the decision to leave the Army in early 2012. Look, you know, I had a couple of different reasons. I, You know, our mission was starting to change slightly over there. As I said, we were working with the DEA. And we were doing a lot of work that had a noticeable effect with regards to destroying drugs and taking the drugs out of the trade. But things started to get political as, as they do with wars. And um, I think the Special Operations Task Group, we were over there to do a specific job. And I started to get the feeling that we were kind of being, um, you know, the handbrake was being put on us. You know, we, we weren't really over there doing what we, it was starting to change. And I just made the decision. I'm like, no, nah, I've done four deployments here now. I'm I'm moving on. And I actually got offered a job working in support of the diplomatic mission over there with the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. So I was I was working as a security uh, part of the security the diplomatic security team. So I finished up my career in the military and um, I exchanged the the uniform for civilian clothing. But I was back over there, basically providing security for the uh, Australian diplomatic mission in Kabul. Do you miss it? I miss parts of it. I miss the camaraderie. I miss a lot of my mates, even though, you know, in this digital day and age, we talk to each other all the time. I I do miss driving into the gate in the morning, you know, like parking my car and walking into the platoon office or the locker rooms and the jokes and the, the laughter and the ribbings and giving each other a hard time and there's no feeling that you can explain like sitting in the back of a Blackhawk with your weapons and your body armour, sitting next to one of your mates about to fast rope onto a building and I mean that's it's just a great feeling but... Um, You know, every soldier kind of gets to a point where he he hits his shelf life. And uh, I look back on it with fond memories. And uh, But, yeah, I'm, I'm moving on with my life now. So, yeah. 22 June
1: 2013, where are you?
0: 22nd of June 2013, I was in Sydney. I had just spent the previous 36 hours flying back from Kabul, Afghanistan.
1: And when did you first hear the news about Cambad?
0: I was a friend's place and my mobile phone rang and it was a private number. And there's a few people that I know, my parents included, that have a private number, but I, I answered it. It was a friend of mine that was deployed and he said to me, I can't talk, and he gave me a code that we use basically letting me know the initials and what had happened, that Cam had been killed. And, you know, I I just got back to Sydney from two months in, in Kabul in Afghanistan. I was on a bit of a high that I was home for a month off. And then I got that news and it was just like a massive kick in the guts.
1: Cam is then subsequently awarded the Victoria Cross for Australia, He's one of only four Australians to currently hold that award and the only one to receive it posthumously. How did that alleviate his loss? Could it? Look, you
0: know, nothing can replace a person, a human being. You know, we all miss Cam. I can't describe how much of a good mate he was to so many of us. He was a really decent human being. People say that him getting the award was a bittersweet situation. Look, I'm proud of him. We all are, you know, like we, those of us that really knew him well and worked closely with him, there really wasn't anyone that you could probably say was more deserving of being honored like that. But at the end of the day, I mean, you know, if we could have him here with us, we'd all trade anything to be able to, for him to be here with us or with his family. But yeah, look, you know, I mean, it didn't surprise me at all. And I was very honoured to be invited by his family to the uh, investiture. And as you said, posthumously, you know, Cam wasn't there, but there was quite a few of his mates and guys from the, from Bravo Company that had fought with him um, on multiple times that were there to, to honour him on that day. And, uh, yeah, look, you know, I mean, it's, it's our duty to make sure that his memory uh, stays alive and we speak on behalf of him because he's not here to do it.
1: Speaking of keeping the memory alive, you have an Instagram page and there's a lot of amazing photos there. You don't hold back. You are putting the good stuff up there. But I'm not just plugging that. You're using that platform to honour the fallen can you talk to me a bit more about that the men from my
0: unit that have made the ultimate sacrifice you know i uh and not just those guys you know the the other you know the 41 australians that uh didn't come back from afghanistan you know it's something that's very important to me i don't ruminate about their losses but i'm very conscious of that every day i am grateful that i came home and You know, those guys didn't. You know, they all had families. They all had people that cared about them. They all had mates, you know, and I was mates with a lot of those guys. And I know they're never going to get forgotten. But for me and what's important to me intrinsically is that I acknowledge that. And it's important, I think, that a lot of the people out there who might have just read a newspaper article or they might have seen a, a short story on a on a news bulletin or something, that if they do st- stumble across that page or they see it, that they get a little bit more information about those guys and uh, that they weren't just a face on the TV or a picture on the, on the newspaper front cover, that they were actually somebody that had a life and Gave up their life so that we can all enjoy living ours, and um, you know that's 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 really very important to me. And uh, if anyone gets anything out of it, and or even just acknowledges one of the guys, or or you know, it, it it means a lot to me that they're they're acknowledged even after their death.
1: They were Australians, just like you and me, and you are bringing that to light in a very powerful, meaningful way. Eddie, you've had a remarkable life of service, and you are continuing to serve in ongoing developing ways, and I'm honoured to have spoken with you today and to have learned your story. Thank you for sharing with me. Thanks, Alex. It's been a pleasure. That was my chat with Eddie Robertson. You can follow Eddie on Instagram at zero seven nine. To help him honour the fallen and see his remarkable images taken on combat operations. You can follow us on Instagram too, at Life on the Line Podcast. We're also on Facebook at Life on the Line Podcast and on Twitter at L-O-T-L-Pod. And our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Subscribe to the podcast in your app of choice to get all our veteran conversations on Tuesdays and bonus episodes on Fridays. And if you know a veteran serviceman or servicewoman with a story to tell please get in touch. We would love to have them on the podcast. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Workhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget...